0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as chair of research and technology ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto to talk about his recently co authored volume, Neo Calvinism, with Corey Brock from Lexham Press. Today, we talk about the retrieval of Neo Calvinism theology as well as social thought. Dr. Sutanto is an Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was ordained in the International Presbyterian Church and has received a visiting fellowship at Compton Theological University. Other than Herman Bobbings, Dr. Sutanto's research interests are broad, ranging from modern Protestant theology, prolegomena, humanity, and sin, as well as the relationship between philosophy and theology, analytic theology, and Christianity and culture. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Gray, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really grateful for you and your work, especially that of Corey. It's funny, I'm looking forward to this conversation for so long because I've long kind of followed your work, uh, both of you. And You were very influential in a lot of the things that I've been doing, especially on Herman Bavinck and thinking through that as a Baptist, kind of applying some of his thought in terms of dogmatics and ethics and how that plays out in the public square And I'm really excited to have you to talk about this new book, Neo-Calvinism, a theological introduction that was recently published by Lexham Academic. I'd love to, before we dive into the book, though, to hear a little bit about your background, kind of what steps brought you to kind of studying Neo-Calvinism and to teaching theology, a little bit about your background and story.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that. Yeah, I grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia, and then I did a five-year stint growing up in Singapore as well, and then finished off middle school and high school back in Jakarta, and I became a Christian, really, toward the senior year of high school. I tell people this, that I was a star student, and that's not a good thing. It means a student at risk. <laughs> back in high school, and a lot of the teachers were shunning me, but because I went to a Christian international school, I had a headmaster who was a Reformed Baptist guy who actually took me under his wing, and he entertained my questions. He allowed me to ask good questions back to him, you know, and um, he wasn't scared of those questions, and we had probably a year-long weekly conversation and mentorship there, and he really guided me through some of those major issues that I had with Christianity. And at the end of that year, I went to a Pentecostal religious service, and there was a sermon on the prodigal son, and I became a Christian. And it was almost an immediate thing, but looking back, it was that year-long conversation with him that really prepared me for that moment. became Calvinistic not long after that, and I went to Biola University, and I'm thankful I became a Christian right before college applications because it helped me actually say to myself, maybe I need a purpose in my life. Maybe I should I should work and study something. So I did a philosophy major there. And after about the first year, I realized that lots of the, the philosophy faculty were actually quite committed to some version of Molinism, Arminianism. And I enjoyed my time there. I mean, they were very clear and rigorous on the need for analytic thinking, precision, and so on. And I really appreciated that. But when I went to the Bible classes, I realized that a lot of the biblical studies professors were Calvinistic. And at that particular moment, I, I became convicted as I was reading Kuiper and, and other thinkers there, and especially also Bart there, that there might be an antithesis between reason and revelation, right? That if you started with the foundation or the principia of reason alone, then perhaps it would lead you to one set of theological conclusions. But if you start with, revelation, special revelation as a norming norm, special revelation as a principium cognoscente or principle of knowledge, a foundation for knowing, then you'd end up with a different theological conclusion. And Kuyper's antithesis doctrine was really attracted to me at that particular point in my life. Went to Westminster Seminary, where that was really sharpened, and ended up at Edinburgh, of course, doing Hermann Boving, seeing that actually Boving has that Kuyperian perspective, the antithesis, but he is much more nuanced about it. And circled me back around, therefore, to the usefulness of things like analytic reasoning and analytic philosophy in ways that I So it it kind of came came back full circle because of Bobbing's influence, where he allowed me to retain lots of the points of the antithesis while also showing me how to use, you know, Daniel Strange's term, subversive fulfillment, other concepts, other philosophical tools from within a revelational or a Christian starting point. So epistemology was really a big driving influence looking back now on why I was so attracted to neo-Calvinism and my, my experience in college really shaped me at that initial juncture. Well, one of my favorite things about talking to authors about their new work is hearing a little bit of the story and kind of the background,
1: kind of the genesis of a work like this. Uh, every book has a story, every author has a story of kind of what kind of led them to write a book like this, not only the need, but also the story about how it came about. I'd love to hear a little bit about the background of kind of you and Corey and why you wanted to write a work like this.
0: Yeah, you know, we were doing our PhDs together at Edinburgh and his desk was, you know, literally a couple of meters away from mine. And we were working on adjacent topics on Bovink. He was writing on Bovink's use of Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern theology. And I was writing on Bovink's theological epistemology. So we were really looking at some of the same texts from different angles. And as we were looking at secondary literature on Hermann Bovink and reflecting on our own seminary experiences, he went to RTS and I went to Westminster. We realized that so many of the the secondary sources critiquing neo-Calvinism We're really critiquing second-generation, third-generation permutations of neo-Calvinism in America, and not necessarily Kuyper and Bobbing themselves, or they were not really clear about the differences between the two, first-generation and the second-third receptions of of neo-Calvinism. And also the secondary literature on advancements or positive, you know, endorsers of neo-Calvinism, they were also focusing much more on the non-theological disciplines within neo-Calvinism. So neo-Calvinism and, say, politics, political theology. Actually, every single one of our podcast interviews, especially in our current moment, is asking me, what does a neo-Calvinistic political theology look like? And I mean, there's real contributions there from neo-Calvinism, but I feel like the fact that you're asking that question means that we needed to write this book because it's not primarily a political program, right? Or, you know, texts on neo-Calvinism and education, university building, worldview, philosophy, and not really, again, on the theological moorings of neo-Calvinism, which really informed the neo-Calvinistic take on those particular loci. So we thought, hey, we needed to recover this aspect of neo-Calvinism. And the Boving translations were really significant for that because I think part of the reason why neo-Calvinism was so defined and so critiqued in those ways as a non-theological, horizontalized movement was because people were still coming to grasp to to Boving's contributions as a progenitor of neo-Calvinism, the reform dogmatic. So I would hear oftentimes, you know, even in seminary, oh, I don't like neo-Calvinism, but I like boving. You know, when we did the book launch here at RTS, I, I mentioned kind of jokingly, I want to, I, I want to make it impossible for people to do that. <laughs> I want people to see that if you like neo-Calvinism, then you have to see boving as really the definer of it, one of the definers of it. And if you like boving, you can't hate neo-Calvinism. Yeah, I think a lot
1: of listeners may be familiar with Abraham Kuyper as well as Herman Bavinck, especially because on this podcast, we've hosted a number of thinkers and writers and authors kind of diving into some of those ideas. And uh, many listeners know Herman Bavinck, especially the way he sees dogmatics and ethics connecting as kind of the two primary disciplines of the Christian life. That's been so influential on me and how I think about when I teach philosophy and ethics here at Boyce College. I wanted to see as we start to kind of unpack and kind of dive into Neo-Calvinism. Some folks may, be, uh, may have heard of this term before, but they may not be super familiar with it. So I wanted to see if you could kind of describe what is Neo-Calvinism and a little bit of kind of the history of the movement. You kind of talked about it in the first and second and third generation. Can you tell us a little bit of kind of the overview of kind of its genesis and kind of where we are today?
0: Yeah. So first thing that we got to say, and I always kind of lament that we have to say this, but is that Neo-Calvinism is not new calvinism Right. A lot of our listeners perhaps would be aware of new Calvinism and it's associated with figures like John Piper, John MacArthur, even like even Mark Driscoll in the past, and in some ways Tim Keller as well. And you know, some of those thinkers are connected genetically to Neo Calvinism in the sense that I'm talking about it here, especially Keller, but not so much other figures of that twenty first century, twentieth century American evangelical revival of predestinarian soteriology, right? for the American evangelical scene. So that's neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism is an older movement, and it's a theological tradition that stems out of the works of Abraham Kuyper and Herman Boving. So, you know, Kuyper died in 1920, Herman Boving died in 1921, and I would say that their deaths was probably the end of that first-generation neo-Calvinistic work. So what do I mean by neo-Calvinism? First, perhaps just the term Calvinism in Kuyper's and Boving's perspective. So, you know, you would get this from Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism and Boving's Future of Calvinism that's an article that he wrote not long before Kuyper's own lectures on Calvinism and I mean they modified it here and there especially as they've matured and progressed but basically the idea from their perspective is that Calvinism is a broader term than reformed theology people now would say well Calvinism is a narrower term Calvinism refers to the five points of Calvinism right tulip total depravity and so on um, but reformed theology refers to The confessional traditions of Reformed theology, whether in the three forms of unity in the Dutch Reformed tradition, Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, Canons of Dort, or the Westminster Standards in the American and Scottish and English Presbyterian traditions, for them, however, Calvinism is broader than Reformed theology. Reformed theology refers to that confessional tradition that they want to hold on to. Calvinism refers to, they would argue, a world-formative kind of idea. It's not just a theology, but it's how. That theology informs every area of life, especially as a holistic kind of perspective. And they would argue that this is drawn from the French reformer, John Calvin. Now, it's not that they were pitting Calvin against the Calvinists or Calvin against the reform orthodox, but they were inspired at the fact that Calvin's work at Geneva was a very holistic leavening work, not just in the church, but also in political theology. Yes, in philosophy and so on, in their perspective. So they drew from that perspective, uh, from that holism of Calvinism. But they didn't want to just repristinate everything that Calvin did in Geneva, right? Calvin, for instance, believed in an established church. Lots of the reformers believed in an established church. And they would argue in this specific aspect, the neo aspect, that, hey, we don't live like that anymore because now we recognize that perhaps Constantine and Theodosius were wrong and Calvin were wrong here. Kuiper explicitly said Calvin was very wrong in going with the burning of Servetus, for instance. Calvin was wrong in not allowing Catholics and the Remonstrant Armenians later on, right, to be citizens in good standing within the same nation and so on. They, they wanted a free church, in other words. So the Neo aspect, especially I was just rereading Bobbing's Future of Calvinism yesterday, the Neo aspect was them saying, now we live in a democratic time. Now we live after the spring of the nations, and we no longer believe that the church should be tethered to one nation. And we should believe in the free church just now because Calvinism says, if God is Lord, if Christ is Lord, every square inch is under Christ's lordship, then we are not lords. And we have to coexist with non-believers and we have to persuade by means of the spirit and not the sword. So that's the the specific aspect of the neo, this idea that actually now we live in a democratic society and we should take that into consideration. And actually Calvinism provides a better foundation for the pluralism and the democracy that the world wants but can't have because if you have a naturalistic sort of perspective you'll end up stifling religious freedom but calvinism actually provides that for you and and so the second way it's neo the first is that democracy pluralism idea the second is that they saw the advancements from the enlightenment romantic philosophy as not just something to be shunned but something to be used for christian theology and so we try to show in this book you know, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of Revelation, doctrine of man, anthropology. They wanted to incorporate the newer findings of the day in psychology and romantic philosophy to advance the same old reform orthodox doctrines. So the moniker "Orthodoxy at Modern" that really characterizes this project. It's also titled of one of Corey's book, is to say we want to be orthodox, we want to hold on to our confession, and we want to apply that confession to our new questions of the day using the terms of the day so that we might be able to persuade and contextualize better. So orthodoxy is not to be shunned. The past is necessary. You need to retrieve it. But retrieval is not sufficient. It's retrieval for the sake of renewal, retrieval for the sake of contemporary presentation. So those are some broad descriptions.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've kind of mentioned this already, but this idea of retrieval and kind of renewal, and that I think for a lot of people, when they hear of neo-Calvinism or they hear of Kuyper and Bavinck specifically, they think of natural, and you guys kind of introduced this early on in the work, you think of the kind of the social, political, cultural components of neo-Calvinism. But you rightfully note there hasn't been as much work kind of recovering the theological kind of contours of theological foundation. And I wanted to ask, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think, especially, I mean, I was introduced as kind of my personal background, I was introduced to kind of reformational thought, kind of neo-Calvinism in many ways, and even bobbing kind of from that kind of social, political, kind of ethical realm, thinking through worldview studies, for example, or something to that effect. Why is it that there seems to, in your opinion, kind of a neglect of kind of the theological foundation of this kind of larger kind of philosophical system?
0: Yeah, lots of reasons, I think. And, you know, you're not the first person to ask us that. And, and I've reflected on this and and thought about it and circled back on certain answers. I think a few key pivotal things here. First is people are only aware of Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism, where he covers, you know, Calvinism and politics, Calvinism and science, Calvinism and art, for instance. That's the main pivotal text. And they don't even read the whole thing, usually. I sometimes joke, if if you hear people signing Kuyper's every square inch quote from lectures on Calvinism, then it's probably a sign that they've never really read Kuyper. They saw it maybe in a Christian high school plaque, right? Every square inch belongs to the Lordship of Christ or Christian University or little pamphlets here and there, whatever. So they take that out of context where they've only read lectures on Calvinism. And that's where Kuyper is applying a Calvinistic life system, he would say, to those different fields of life. And so they read that and they haven't read, let's say, Kuyper's Encyclopedia of sacred theology, which is a very dogmatic text. And only a portion of that has been translated into English, right? Only, if my memory serves me right, just a second volume and little bits of volume one um, has been translated. And and in that particular text, as we're writing through this book, he very specifically says, it's in the doctrine of scripture where we have to do most work as neo-Calvinists. And Bavink, in his Modernism and Orthodoxy Address 1911, says it's in the doctrine of scripture as well, that we have presented a most acute creative form of of doctrine that's new. So in their perspective, their main contribution, one of their main contributions is actually in theology, dogmatics, a doctrine of scripture, which is very interesting. Second is, as well, um, Boving's reformed dogmatics just being recently translated, right? So people would have read Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism, and then they would read, let's say, Doiviert, right, which is a very reformational sort of philosophy, And the main dogmatic text of Neo-Calvinism had just been left untranslated, which is Bobbing's Reform Dogmatics. And I think that's a major, major reason why. Third, especially in America, is the co-opting of Neo-Calvinism, perhaps, by certain Reconstructionist movements. So let's say Rush Dooney, the Chalcedonian Foundation there, um, I think it was in California, right? And so Neo-Calvinism becomes confused with a kind of cultural transformationalism, which is not their... I really don't think that that's a, an accurate way of describing their position. Either the Rush Dooney trajectory or maybe sort of movements in Grand Rapids about cultural transformation, which really watered down the theology for the sake of mere cultural engagement, if that makes sense. So those voices become louder than the primary sources. And so much of it, therefore, is just contingent translational issues. Others of it is what's most immediately around you, therefore, right? Um reading Kuiper here and there, and then those other movements there. Um, so yeah, I think those are some of the main reasons. Yeah, one of
1: the things that when I teach here at
0: boys College, I teach uh, worldview
1: analysis, and I've long kind of assigned certain texts from Bob Inc. or from Kuiper and kind of having discussions with students. And one of the ways that I've found that it, helps best for them to understand kind of the nature of worldview studies or the nature of world and life view, kind of depending on what language you want to use, or even some of the more contemporary ideas like social imaginary, is understanding the role of theology alongside anthropology, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, and kind of a five-fold kind of spectrum or viewpoint of understanding a larger philosophy. And that's something that I really appreciated about something like this, is it kind of shows that theological foundation is going back into scripture is so foundational for kind of the entirety of our worldview and the entirety of our philosophical system. One of the things that I I really love about this, this is kind of a wide-ranging work. So, I mean, there's multiple chapters, there's multiple topics. We could spend multiple podcasts or even an entire semester or more just kind of diving into one specific topic. But I do want to kind of touch on two main topics, two ideas that kind of have shaped me a lot and something I'm really interested to kind of hear your perspective on. And first is kind of thinking through uh, the relationship between reason and rationality, reason and revelation. I think you cover this in chapters four and chapter eight, when you're speaking to kind of the relationship of revelation and reason, specifically in the works of Kuyper and Bavinck, as well as kind of the differences between common grace and the natural law tradition. I think in a lot of Protestant circles, there's kind of been this renewal and this retrieval of the natural law tradition. And I know that sometimes people use the language of kind of general revelation and natural law or natural theology kind of interchangeably, but you note in chapter four uh, that there's a, a preference of using general and special revelation. So I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit of kind of the the relationship between revelation and reason and how we see that kind of playing out, um, even in kind
0: of the ethical tradition of kind of recovering some of the natural law. Yeah, fantastic. So readers who want to, who want to really dive in into these topics would really do well in just reading Corey Brock's Orthodoxy and Modern. Hermann Bawing's use of Friedrich Schleiermacher, which forms the backdrop of Kuyper's and Bawing's use of these terms, general revelation, natural theology, and uh, reasoning, right? But here's the basic idea. The reason why I think people would read Bovink and say, well, he, he likes natural theology, or he doesn't like natural theology, there's competing readings on this, especially, well, not, not recently. I think it's been cleared up recently, but but at, at least in, let's say, the late 90s, early 2000s, people would say, Boving is pro-natural theology, Boving is against natural theology, Kuiper is pro-natural theology, Kuiper is against natural theology. It's because they recognized that in the Reformed tradition, the use of natural theology was basically omnipresent, right? And we have to see that, but it's used in a very distinct way than perhaps some of the medieval scholastics and also especially against some of the rationalists of 18th century uh, philosophy. So when they used natural theology, they did not—this is the the Reformed theologians, the the 17th century Orthodox that Kyber and Bobbing would stand upon and draw upon. They did not mean that natural theology just meant the proofs for God's existence. That was a preamble for supernatural theology. They argued that natural theology was a subset of revelation. This is thinking about Franciscus Junius' treatise on true theology. So natural theology was God's revelation— it's a subset of revelation, and it's not meant to be divorced from supernatural theology, nor is it meant to be divorced from the whole sequence of Christian doctrine, right? So, in the locus of revelation, natural, therefore, doesn't refer to autonomy, human reasoning without revelation, and so on. But Boffing and Kyber recognized that once we got to the 18th century, everybody was using the term natural theology, but people were defining it differently. So, they wanted to really make clear what they meant by natural theology so in some passages they would still use the term natural theology but then kuyper would say when we speak of natural theology we do not mean the reasoning of man to get to an infinite god but rather it is god who comes down and makes himself manifest to us especially in our hearts or consciousness boving would say the same thing so he says i prefer the term natural revelation or general revelation over natural theology because natural theology could imply that it's just natural they were doing this, or this is just autonomy. It's just human rationality without supernatural revelation. But according to Christian theology, natural revelation is just as supernatural as special revelation, because both is God speaking, one through creation and another through the text of Scripture. And here's where Bovings and Kuyper's romantic philosophy helps them. They would argue that general revelation. Therefore, it has to do with providing the affects of God consciousness, the feeling of absolute dependence in our hearts, and because it's an affect, because it's a feeling, right? Feeling here is not emotion, mind you. Feeling here is a pre-theoretical impulse. Let's just say a pre-theoretical effect. I, I you know, there's there's so many ways we can talk about this, but a pre-theoretical sense. Let's say a sense that you know that God exists and that you're accountable to him. So because it's an affect, it's not something that is the product of the human reasoning. Human reasoning presupposes affects. Think about the gut feeling that you have before you were able to articulate something, right? You had a feeling that something was wrong, but you were not able to articulate what exactly was wrong. Though you you still knew it, but you were not able to articulate it in concepts. That's the romantic sort of trajectory that Kyber and Bobbing were working with. And they would say, well, what if we took that? romantic philosophy, this category of affect, this category of feeling that is an affect before concepts and say, that's the work of God. And natural theology is always there for a second moment, as we say in the book, a second moment that presupposes those affects. So theologizing, reasoning is always dependent on a prior witness within, and it's not to be conflated, therefore. And I think we know this already, Uh, Instinctively today, because of the terms that we use, so systematic theology, which is a reflection on supernatural revelation, is not revelation. Natural theology is also not revelation, right? So yes, we can talk about common notions, propositions that are immediately known, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, the laws of logic, and so on. But as long as those are concepts and propositional lies, they already presuppose the workings of the human mind, whereas general revelation is independent of the human mind. It's God revealing himself in the human consciousness. So some examples here may be, you know, when an infant knows who their parents are without able to propositionalize, that's a kind of affect, right? When you got a sense that something is wrong and you you head towards somewhere, and that's a sense of affect. When you're thinking about something on the way home, and suddenly you were home and you didn't remember which route you, you took when you got home, that's a kind of precognitive affect, right? So that's the that's the sort of way in which Bobbing is talking about these things. And and that's a really important dimension. And I think evangelicals today would do well at retrieving this. I think we we've forgotten it. And um we we keep confusing natural theology and 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 general revelation. So one of the questions that kind of comes
1: up alongside a lot of this is kind of the deeply anthropological questions, specifically with theological anthropology. How do we understand what does it mean to be human? which I argue is one of the central questions of our day. It's always been a central question, but especially today in terms of ethics and kind of social thought is that question of what does it mean to be human? And that's where I've benefited so immensely from bavink's description of the Imago Dei and understanding how God has created us in his very image. Um, so maybe you can kind of tie those two thoughts together a little bit in terms of how did Kuiper and bavink specifically think about that idea of what does it mean to be human? What are their kind of unique maybe contributions to our understanding of that doctrine, and how did they kind of understand broadly what is the image of God, which I think is a very important question that sometimes we just throw out that language of, oh yeah, we're creating God's image and we move on, but
0: say, what does that actually mean? Yeah, great question. So, wow, so many different angles we can take this. I think one of my favorite quotes, this is just tying back to the general revelation question, from Boving. I said in his uh, Principles of Psychology, it's been translated as Foundations of Psychology, where he says, understanding make up so little of the essence of man. Um, another way that you can translate it is reasoning makes up so little of the essence of man. So I think in our modern ideas of human nature, we tend to think that reasoning and conscious reasoning, right? is the pinnacle of human existence. And Boving would say it makes us unique, but it doesn't mean that your expertise, that the sign of human maturity is an explicit reasoning. Reasoning makes us unique, but the use of reasoning is not that which is a marker of mature human existence, put it that way. And that's where, again, when he talks about anthropology, he says that we have to do justice to the wholeness of human existence, from the unconscious to the very conscious. And even the and the unconscious existence, there's already an important sense in which you already know things. So he's got this wonderful line in the in the principles of, of psychology. And psychology doesn't mean in the Freudian sense for these reformed theologians. Psychology here refers to the study of the soul, the faculties of the soul, the Greek word suke, right? So a more literal, you know, study of the soul faculty. He says that he wants to rely on the older Christian Aristotelian tradition. But the Christian Aristotelian tradition, which understands humanity as rational animals, right, with a vegetative, sensitive, and rational soul, doesn't do justice, he says, to, firstly, the unity of the human person. Secondly, the way in which the rational soul is still very much an embodied being and therefore has an unconscious aspect. And thirdly, Therefore, um, they need to take into account the current psychological studies on the mystery of the unconscious in the heart, such that you can't really know someone unless you have really seen those unconscious impulses and not just what they say consciously, right? So I think that's one aspect. They've got a very holistic, therefore, anthropology. When we think about the image of God, it's not just in reasoning. It's in the wholeness of the human being, if that makes sense. So... They want to rely on the older metaphysical tradition and say that the image of God is in the substance or the structure of what you are, which allows you to have relations and which allows you to have the ability to obey a particular cultural mandate or vocation to steward and cultivate culture, right? But they want to also update what that substance looks like. And and they're not satisfied in just repeating the details of, let's say, halomorphism or the soul as a form of the body, right? They want to say more about that. And they want to learn from the psychological insights of their day. Another thing to say about their view of the image of God is that they have a very distinctly corporate understanding of the image of God. So when we think about, you know, the image of God as a particular metaphysical structure with imagination, reason, the will, and so on. Relation with God and covenant with God and also a vocation. Well, Baving says... It's not possible for a single individual to excel at every single one of those features in every way. So we need everyone, right? And because God is infinite, we need a diversity of creatures to reflect God. Only a diversity of creatures would do. So I'm actually writing two books right now on Bavink and anthropology. And one of the things I try to say, and I just finished a chapter on gender, is uh, I've got this section on gender, speaking about natural law. I call it Two Cheers for Natural Law. (laughs) And in the natural law tradition, you've got very precise prescriptions of what it means to be masculine and feminine. I was just reading a book and it says, you know, to be masculine means to be regal in a kingly way and to be feminine means to be queen in a queenly way or whatever, you know. And I just think to myself, wow, that's a very Western perspective. And it it, it confuses culture with nature, I would suggest. And I'm, the best natural law theorists would concede that distinction between nature and custom. But I, I try to say, well, what if, you know, to define precisely what is masculine and feminine now doesn't do justice to the corporate sense of the image of God. Because what if the, to be masculine means that not just every individual needs to be masculine in every way or in a uniform fashion. But to be masculine just means to exist as a male. And masculinity is expressed by different people in different ways. And there's a corporate temporal sense to where we haven't seen what masculinity looks like until every culture is consummated in the last day, you know? And, and that's a very Bavinkian perspective. And that corporate sense of the image of God is so important to understand race, gender. And um, when we take a look at the older tradition, you got some language about human beings as meant to be in relation. You know, Augustine talks about human beings as social creatures. But no one, I think, and no other tradition, as far as I can tell, until the neo-Calvinists really try to focus on that corporate sense. Maybe because they're really reading Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher has some... Interesting texts on this, but um they really try to codify it for a reformed anthropology. And so I think that's really fruitful. Yeah, I think as an ethicist, it's
1: really interesting to see, especially that conversation surrounding what does it mean to be human and how we apply that. So, I mean, you kind of allude to there kind of the three primary perspectives on the image of God, that substantive view, the relational view, and kind of a functional view. And in my own work, kind of taking kind of stepping back and saying it's not the capacities or the attributes per se. Uh, that what constitute kind of the image, it's more of a status, kind of being a biological member of the human species. That kind of captures that idea of the mind and the body um, as a unified whole, instead of just saying, well, the mind's more important than the body, or it's just a container for the soul, or vice versa, where the, the body is really what matters versus the soul. One of the things that especially is kind of applying this, and I'd be remiss to not ask this, is especially in Herman and Bavinck's work you see kind of this relationship of theology and ethics one of the things i've seen in my own tradition especially is that often the study of ethics is downplayed it's just kind of the mere application of theology but it's interesting to note, I mean, for me, as I step back and look at it, you have this kind of four volume reform dogmatics where recently we're on volume two now, but we have this reformed ethics and kind of seeing the rich tradition of theology and ethics and that beautiful passage seen in dogmatics as well as reformed ethics about the relationship between theology and ethics. I want to see if you could kind of play that out a little bit, especially kind of in the broader kind of neo-Calvinist movement of the relationship and the primacy of those two disciplines within the Christian life.
0: Right. Real quick comment about theological anthropology, picking up on that initial introduction that you, you mentioned in the last question. And then secondly, I'll talk about the dogmatics ethics relation. I don't think the, ultimately, I don't think the modern bifurcation between the structural, the relational and the functional views of anthropology are very useful. In fact, I think when we read the primary sources in Augustine, Aquinas, and the Neo-Calvinists, the Reform Orthodox as well here, they just don't see having to choose between those realities. So even Augustine, who is the most, you know, he's the most used example of a structuralist thinker on the image of God because he locates the image of God in the intellect. He would argue that, that when we talk about the image of God, there is a metaphysical aspect and there's an ethical aspect. Image of God means that you really do represent God, you really do resemble God, and therefore, resemblance notice is ambiguous resemblance metaphysically and a conformity sense that you have to conform yourself to the image of God. So when, when, when we were, when they were talking about the capacities of reasoning, they weren't saying the more you reason, the more you image of God necessarily, but rather human beings are the kinds of beings with the active potency of reason. So even the, the examples of disability actually confirm that you don't say that a rock is disabled cognitively because it doesn't think because it never had the active potency to think, right? But rather, when you say that someone is infertile or someone is disabled, someone is, let's say, limping, you're presupposing a kind of proper function, a kind of active or essential potency that is not yet actualized. And even when someone's in a vegetative state, that still presupposes that they were supposed to be in a proper functioning sort of way. So that's why I think the natural law tradition is really still helpful there. and that connects therefore metaphysics to ethics really really well because now when we talk about the human person you're asking the question of what are they for and if they're made in the image of god it already denotes a kind of relation you're meant to image god you are made as an image of god that status idea that you're bringing up and therefore you have to live in conformity to god so i think embedded in the image language is a covenantal responsibility And Adam, who was the image bearer, was meant to represent God, and yet he disobeyed, right? And that brought about a relational rupture between him and God and also him and creation because in not representing God well to creation, now creation resists him. So I'm guessing when you talked about, you know, using Bovink in the dogmatics ethics line, you're talking about one of his initial pages in the reformed ethics where he says, dogmatics is God speaking to us and and Ethics is us speaking back to God responding to God, right? And I think that gets at what it means to be a human being. You are you're, you're always, because you're image bearers, you're always responding to God in some way. And because everybody knows God, everybody feels their dependence on God using that language of affect, There is no one who is on the fence. You're always responding to God at every point of your existence. Every thought, you know, and every every movement that you make presupposes that Knowledge of God, the affect of God, right? So I love Johann Bovink's sense of this, where he he wrote, you can find this in the in the Johann Bovink reader. He says, "Mankind is always playing hide and seek with God. Deep inside his consciousness, there is always a silent engine." He says, "Calling us back to God's self, and yet we try to suppress it in a kind of unconscious repression because." we are trying to run away from God because we have a, a traumatic relation with him. And the thing about trauma is you try to forget it. And at a certain point, you get so good at trying to forget it that it becomes an unconscious repression. You avoid certain places, you avoid certain triggers. And you do that so well and in such an unconscious fashion that you find yourself not even thinking about it. But the moment something happens to remind you of that trauma, all the emotions come back. And Johann Boving says, we all have a traumatic relation with God. Not the trauma of a victim, but trauma of a perpetrator. You're trying to run away from your guilt, right? This is Romans 1 language. And because of that, all of our actions are informed by that running away. And yet, we're running away from the very father that we need. And how, did that, how does that, that work out? So the Neo-Calvinist tradition is so useful because it, it respects the reasoning of humanity, but it also has that holistic sense. You're not just a reasoning creature. You're embodied. And ethically, that means you're always responding to God. And this means we need to take care of the unconscious as much as the conscious. So I, I say even in class, apologetics is a species of counseling. You're never just working with people who need more data or more education, right? You're trying to do something with this conversation. I really like the way you frame that. And I mean, there's obviously so much more
1: that we could and should even dive into here. Um, But for time's sake, I do want to kind of ask you one final question. Um, It's kind of next steps. I think for a lot of listeners, this obviously goes very deep. There's so much more depth there. And I encourage folks to grab a copy of Neo-Calvinism, a theological introduction that was recently released by Lexham Academic. Um, But I wanted to see if there's um, a couple of works maybe outside of this helpful work that you would encourage folks. I think sometimes we, especially those who may not have advanced degrees or kind of have done a lot of reading in these figures, can get quite intimidated and quite overwhelmed um, by picking up like a big, like a volume of reform dogmatics, for example, or something. Is there kind of an entry point or some resources that you may recommend for folks if they're brand new or if they're wanting, you know, if they've done some reading and want to dig a little bit more into kind of the theological foundations here, uh, where would you encourage folks to start or kind of next steps if they wanted to dive a little bit more into this movement?
0: Yeah, I think um, in terms of the very entry point level, uh, we do have a podcast that that tries to engage with every aspect of neo-Calvinism, which is the Grace in Common podcast, which is a riff on Common Grace, right? Which is a very neo-Calvinist doctrine. Uh, Grace in Common is led by myself, James Eglinton, lecturer, senior lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh, Meredith de Young pastor at Osted Park Kirk in, in, in Amsterdam, Corey Brock, who co-authored this book with me, and pastor at, at Edinburgh. Um, so we, we really try to engage this tradition, use it, criticize it, apply it in different areas of life. So I would point people to that podcast as a starting point. In terms of texts for starting points, I would say Herman Boving's Guidebook to the Christian Religion, recently translated by Cameron Clausing and Greg Parker, friends of ours, or also his bigger volume, Wonderful Works of God. Those are sort of distillations of his bigger reform dogmatics, right? The guidebook was a, was a text written for high schoolers, Whereas Wonderful Works of God was a text written for young professionals, college students, both of which are condensed versions of the Reformed dogmatics and wrote much later than the Reformed dogmatics. And in a sense, therefore, you're getting the more mature bobbing in these two texts. If you're wanting to get a bit more advanced than that, the Kuiper reader, Centennial reader that was published by Erdman's back in, say, I think 1998 or 2000, edited by James Bratt, where he has... Some of his most significant addresses like Sphere Sovereignty, his texts on uniformity, unity, and diversity, all of that is in that reader. And I would also say look out for our TNT Clark handbook of Neo-Calvinism. Hopefully out 2024. We're still waiting for a couple last-minute contributions to that volume, but it's basically almost done. And that would cover the whole sweep of the tradition. Every theological loci is going to be revisited, 40 different authors. Also second, third generation covering thinkers like Herman Doeveard, G.C. Burkauer, Klaas Schilder. And so people would see the different trajectories of Neo-Calvinism. And the last section of that handbook also covers the legacy of it in philosophy in missions and even engagements with pastoral ministry. Tim Keller has a, has a chapter on that a wonderful chapter. Um, so look out for that text. And if you want to read more on anthropology, I do have a couple of books, again, coming out on that. So, so Lord willing, that would be really helpful. One with Tinty Clark and another with Lexham Press. So um, in the next couple of years, hopefully that would be out. Yeah, and that's one of
1: the kind of exciting things about this movement, especially in the Americas, is seeing more and more translations, more and more works coming out on these really important ideas. And so we'll make sure to link to all of those resources in our show notes, as well as some past podcasts that we had with Jess Joustra on reformed ethics, as well as James Eglinton um, on Herman Bovink and that really wonderful biography that he did a few years ago with Baker. We'll make sure to link to all of those podcasts and resources uh, in the show notes for listeners. But Gray, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful for your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us for a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Satanto and learn more about his new book, Neo-Calvinism, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.